So Phil and I just sat down for an awesome interview with Abby (sighs) Cardis and Justin Feldman. Um, We, of course, as we talked about in last week's main feed episode, we had to revisit the Great Barrington Declaration and give you, you know, the full death panel treatment of the scenario. And we have like two great Barrington watchers, right? These people are doing the arduous work of tracking bad right-wing pseudoscience um, so that we don't have to. So very exciting. I mean, it's important work. Yeah. So um, this was originally a patron episode. Um, If you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash death panel pod, you'll get access to all the bonus episodes like these, the entire back catalog, and actually, you know, we have there are a lot of interviews in there that haven't been unlocked. Like there's one with Nathan Tankus. There's one uh, where we went uh, through Matt Ooh. Iglesias's new book, One Billion Americans. Yeah. With Jacob Bacharach. Highly recommend. So become a patron. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get access to all the back catalog. Tons of good stuff and support our work. That's great. So without further ado, please enjoy this fantastic interview where you will learn all you need to fucking, what do they say on YouTube? Like Jordan Peterson destroys blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yeah. So here's your, how to destroy the great Barrington declaration in a debate. (laughs) Got that out, but whatever. It's fine. Um, That's good. That's good. Today, we have a really special episode. It is kind of a part two of our discussion of the Great Barrington Declaration. We have Abby Cardis coming back to the show. Abby is a PhD candidate in perinatal epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. And also, we have Justin Feldman joining us, who is also an epidemiologist, um, but of social inequality and state violence, and a health and human rights fellow at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. Abby, welcome back. Justin, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you both. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having us. We so, didn't think we would have you back on so soon, but news uh, <laughs> has a way of catching up with us. Yeah, I mean, you know, targeted protection, it's really the uh, strategy uh, in vogue right now, isn't it? Um, so we we wanted to have you back, Abby, and we wanted to have you on, Justin, because when we had you on last time, Abby, we talked about a interview that um, a epidemiologist named Martin Kaldorf gave for Jacobin and some other media appearances that he's been making in support of a herd immunity strategy, which is sort of this accelerationist principle of figuring out a way to push the pandemic forward, as he likes to say. And he's part of a group of um, scientists who have been working and on sort of pushing this document called the Great Barrington Declaration. And this week they met with the White House, who has decided that they want to embrace this strategy. And YouTube put together a pretty good dossier on sort of just like a itemized list of every attempt that they've made in the media to 
really push this. And it's it really gives a big picture of sort of how much this is a, a very targeted uh, astroturf operation that's that's seeking to make what is essentially a non-consensus opinion of a few scientists appear to be some sort of definitive argument in favor of this public health strategy. And it's sort of coordinated around these three personalities. Um, one is Jay Bhattacharya, who's a, a Stanford professor, and Martin Kaldorf, obviously, and then Sunetra Gupta, who is out of Oxford. Um, now, maybe just uh, for background, you know, Obviously, you guys are not infectious disease epidemiologists, but you do uh, have similar experiences, obviously, in the field. And this is a pretty, uh, I'd say, blatant misuse of your of your expertise in your field, the way that uh, Coldorf is pushing this policy forward. Do you think you could just give us like a little bit of a background as to why you two really felt so strongly about the message that they're pushing and why you decided to try and push back against this narrative? So... I th- we have been, again, we're not infectious disease ep- epidemiologists, nor really are uh, the signers of the statement. The, yeah, the main I was going to say. <laughs> uh, with the sole exception of Sunita Gupta, but we'll, we'll get to her later. And nor is Scott Atlas, who is a radiologist by training, um, <laughs> who is affiliated with this group, but the, they're men on the inside. So he's formally advising the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people out there in the public don't realize just how, and Abby may have even discussed this last time uh, when she was on, just how differentiated and specialized epidemiology is. And when somebody who is calls himself an epidemiologist or some kind of related public health scientist goes to the public trying to use their credentials as the way they're going to get the public to trust them, they they may be misled. I, I think of it a lot uh, similar to how perhaps someone who's a meteorologist uh, will be part of a, a corporate-backed climate change denial effort and address the public, and they don't know that they don't have the proper credentials to even opine about climate change, perhaps. Uh, which isn't to say you can't have correct opinions if you're not in the exact specialty you're opining on, but uh, it, it is certainly uh, a red flag and something that should raise suspicion, especially if your whole message is that, trust me, I'm the expert who is telling you the truth. Uh, but anyway, so we ju- we've just been following this. We're, we're very attuned to sort of the internal politics of epidemiology in the, in the field and and within the realm of what we think of as legitimate scientific discourse and debate, which we can have strong feelings about, we can disagree with, but we can ultimately recognize it as people trying to do science and people publishing in peer review journals and appealing to other scientists and uh, if all goes well, we can confront them or we can challenge their views, also using scientific arguments. And perhaps we will prevail. Perhaps they will prevail. Uh, not not to say that actual science isn't a social process or laden with politics. It is. But I think when we first came across Kaldorf in Jacobin, um, we kind of thought that he was indeed part of this debate within within science. Mm-hmm. And and we were just looking at his arguments and they seemed quite absurd to us. 
and infuriating to us because the, the consequences of what he's arguing was a lot of death and destruction. Um, and and it kind of didn't add up. And he's best actually he's actually best known for he's a statistician. He's best known for making a piece of software that detects disease clusters. Uh, that's how <laughs> I'd come across him before. Uh, so we kind of started putting the pieces together, and it turned out there there were really just three people making similar arguments together or separately, and they had appeared. We documented more than fifty times on in the media in op eds uh, before. Um, committees of state and local governments all arguing their their message wow. isn't even so much for herd immunity as it is against anything the government wants to do to uh, yeah. keep yeah. levels of COVID low. And it's really funny if I can just like interject going through all these media appearances and stuff. It's really funny because they're on all of these like no name like nootropics podcasts <laughs> like all these like really fringe <laughs> you know like these really fringe media outlets. Um, and then it's like, oh, they're meeting with Ron DeSantis in Florida too, right? Like so they're yeah. on these like crazy like supplement podcasts and then like meeting with elected officials who actually have power to like implement or not implement as the case may be some of these policies. So, so this is the, that's the, been an interesting journey. The thing that, the thing that's curious to me, right. And I, I want you guys to actually get into the specifics of the thing, like it's important for us to understand the the details of what they're arguing and why it's why it's wrong, obviously. But I mean, the background here is so interesting to me because like the U.S. is a country which is typically described as having an incredibly low level of public trust in experts. Um, but mm-hmm. paradoxically, if you it, it's paradoxical because that's true. And yet at the same time, when the administration uh, or anybody wants to like purport to cha- you know, to like challenge a, a like public health policy, they have to bring out, they have to trot out experts, even though that's like ostensibly people don't really trust them. It's like there's this media um, appetite for having a debate between experts and for the mm-hmm. question being not resolved, even if it is. And that's like the the really weird thing is it's actually in that environment pretty easy to take ideas that are very fringe and migrate them mm-hmm. to make them seem as if they are mainstream, even though the there is no evidence uh, or research behind anything that's being said in the Great Barrington Declaration, right? Like it's right. the Great Barrington Declaration, like the contents of it, there's no like research basis for, there's no like body of literature that would support it, right? Right. So I think like, I'll just say, I think the biggest thing that has changed Right. Like, I think you're exactly right. And the last time I was on here, you know, I was of the opinion that this is just that this was just something that these two scientists were like really seriously kind of arguing. And since then, you know, we have kind of put together, right, like there is a um, a think tank called I think it's called the American Institute for Economic Research, which sort of sponsored the Great Barrington Declaration. And that is sort of a Koch brothers funded um, think tank that's in this network of, it's in like the climate science denial machine. (laughs) And so like the last time I was on here, you know, like we were treating this as if it was kind of a legitimate scientific proposition. And now it has sort of become clear that the whole intention of the declaration is to create this illusion of a scientific debate around the relative you know, merits of 
implementing or again, not implementing as the case may be this kind of herd immunity, quote unquote, focused protection strategy. Um, and I think that like these experts, yeah, are just truly mercenaries for <laughs> capital. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can like disagree maybe with that characterization of them, but I think like the, the big thing that has become clear to me over the course of this story kind of unfolding is that, yeah, like, of course, the Great Barrington Declaration has no details in it because it's not supposed to be a policy document. You know, it's not supposed to be a scientific document. It's just supposed to be something out there that these authors can point to, to say, you know, oh, like these very credentialed experts disagree with the consensus. So there really like must be something here. And I feel like you see that over and over and over again with, you know, climate science and I think like tobacco, (laughs) the tobacco industry kind of used this strategy Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So in in terms of what's actually in the document, uh, in the, in the declaration, uh, it's quite short um, and it's not very specific and it doesn't reference any kind of scientific evidence about anything. Uh, and, and basically what they say is, so they, one of their rhetorical strategies is to use the term lockdown mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. actually refer to the entire range of public health interventions from test tracing and isolation to uh, targeted restrictions on businesses to the most extreme, which in the U.S. has been um, limiting, you know, h- how often someone can leave their home, which we've seen uh, not not enforced nearly as aggressively as in Europe or, or China, for instance, but has has been something that happens in New York City and San Francisco. Uh, they're collapsing. They're collapsing all that into this thing called lockdown. Mm-hmm. And they're saying lockdowns are bad. They're harmful to health, mm-hmm. mental health and physical health. And they're, in fact, uh, especially among the young, healthy population, they're worse than the pandemic. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And why don't we just take all the high risk people who are older or have underlying conditions, we'll protect them and everyone else can go about their lives basically as normal. Mm-hmm. But they don't. That's basically it. Um, and and they, they reference herd immunity. But I think they've gradually uh, because herd immunity as so this is herd immunity naturally acquired through infection, herd immunity, not herd immunity acquired through vaccines. Uh, that strategy got a very bad rap. And I think uh, I think they're likely working with people uh, in, in right wing think tanks who are helping them develop messaging. So what was once called a stratified lockdown is now called focus protection, which sounds much more positive. Oh, yeah. Uh, Whereas they once focused on herd immunity as the strategy itself. They'd like to get people infected so then they can protect the rest of society. Now it's just herd immunity is like gravity. It's just a fact. It's just <laughs> going to happen. Yeah. Well, and I want to I want to um, interject and just point out that that is another rhetorical strategy that they use. And I remember like Martin Kaldorf kind of melted down on Democracy Now! yesterday. <laughs> but like another thing that they do, right, is say that herd immunity is inevitable, right? right? And it is the only way that we are going to move on from this. And that is obviously not true. (laughs) Right. So like, but like, let's, can we get into the, cause there's two parts of the claim or there's two parts of the argument here. And I think the, the, the way that these sort of pseudoscientific 
projects work is they take something that's very intuitively appealing and has really sort of a grain of truth to it. And then they blend it or merge it with something that is very wrong and very specious. Right. So like to take the first part of the claim, it's that lockdowns have, they, they, they have, they create problems for public health. Now I don't agree with the term lockdown, obviously, but like, you know, because obviously that's not what we're doing in the United States. No, there's no place that's locked down really. Um, but like, let's just assume that like, you know, uh, whatever, more people working from home or, uh, more businesses sort of with capacity limits, there's some sort of marginal, um, you know, problem for public health. I mean, is there any truth to that? Well, I mean, you know, in a sense, uh, they're using some pretty classic claims here, like uh, the idea that by keeping people at home or by like basically not creating ways for people to go about their business um, through targeted and focused protection, like they use the classic example of what about all the cancer screenings that are being missed? What about all the care for chronic mm-hmm. illnesses? What about all the orth- like orthopedic surgeries which are being missed and also the mental health side of it, which there is like, there is like a lot of, of, uh, scientific and, and like medical research that shows that like, yeah, this stuff is, um, important, but it also like, I think ignores the fact that regardless of whether we open up or not, still many people are not going to have access to this type of preventative care that they're yeah. using as the reasoning for, mm-hmm. for yeah. needing to reopen. Yeah. That was my, my yeah. only point was just sort of to say, yeah. uh, they're basically taking this, this ingrained thing that people feel, which is people do not like the experience (laughs) of not being able to do the things that they normally do. They're taking some scientific evidence and blending with that. And then, but then they're merging with this very specious thing. Well, and I think like there is like what's going on now in the United States is a consequence of just massive state failure. Right. And there is no federally coordinated strategy and my my conspiratorial brain is kind of tingling because i feel like pushing this kind of thing right this kind of assertion about how we should address what we have in a lot of places in the us which is uncontrolled community spread that we you know we don't know where this virus is um and at what levels it's circulating in a lot of places my sense, and I, I like, I hope to be wrong about this, but my sense is that pushing this is kind of preemptive, right? Because as we head into winter, things are not looking good um, in a lot of places in the U.S. And I feel like this is really just kind of a broadside, like a statement that all of these industry groups <laughs> essentially do not want any government intervention whatsoever to try to control the spread of this, right? And they just want everything to be open, kind of no matter what happens. And that's what really kind of scares me about this is that like, I feel like there is no future in which we get another round of like, for example, stay at home orders or anything like that, which like the real, the real purpose of something approximating, you know, a lockdown, right? Like a stay at home order or something like that is to buy time Mm -hmm. to like ramp up kind of public health capacity in order to be able to like proactively manage 
the spread of this disease and to kind of know where it is. And I feel like, yeah, my thinking about this now is just like, oh, okay, well, like they've decided that we're not going to get that again. And I, I mean, I have to feel like they don't care (laughs) how many lives it's going to cost. I mean, they haven't put much, they haven't put much effort in the great Barrington declaration or in any of their public communications into talking about, you know, the real, um, logistical difficulties. And I would say impossibilities (laughs) of implementing some kind of focused protection, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I really think that this is just a broad, blunt instrument to say, you know, this is not, like, it is too costly to industry, basically, to do any kind of pandemic control, right? Like, so I, I am taking kind of like a bleak view on this, but I don't know. Well, that I, seems appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's in keeping with sort of the, the, uh, neoliberal framework that we live under, right? Because it's like a very neoliberal policy to basically advocate for a, a stratified focused or targeted, um, strategy, right. Of targeted protection, which is basically their idea is to create a new, really complicated system, Right. Which um, would be more complex and convoluted than the simple strategies, which are sort of the tried and true principles of like how to test, trace and, um, you know, prevent unfettered community spread. And they're basically saying instead of that, let's create this sort of like very uh, McKinsey fied sort of arbitrary like uh, (laughs) system, which, of course, like, you know, would require creating definitions for vulnerability which we don't have which the who doesn't have i mean the most recent institute of medicine report that i've read they can't even decide on a on a way to measure disability so how would we even decide who above like just a simple age restriction would even be uh considered to be vulnerable right so they're sort of advocating for something that that not only abby as you're saying is sort of a preemptive move to potentially indemnify employers from just being able to like continue to move forward at whatever pace they see fit regardless of the health impacts on their employees but it it mm-hmm. also at the same time is like sort of creating in my mind uh, more opportunities for you know these private firms who who really like fellows you talk about all the time are sort of like we contract out so much of our of our government and our and our planning and our policy infrastructure to these like consultants right and this is creating also like a whole new revenue stream for for consultants for management consultants for people that need to then you know sit around the table and decide exactly how cruel we're going to make it legal to be right mhm yeah i think like i on the one hand I agree with you. And on the other hand, I feel like the, at least like the authors of the great Barrington declaration, they just like fully don't give a fuck, right? Like there are no details in it because they don't care. They know that we're not actually going to implement, you know, like they know, I mean, maybe they don't know. I don't know, but like, it's clear in the declaration, like there are no details at all provided about how this would actually be done. Right. And like, I can speculate about how it would be done and it would be a nightmare, but like, I feel like these three scientists that are kind of lined up behind this declaration, like they just don't, they don't even feel, they don't feel responsible to think about how to actually implement this. And I think that, um, maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the signers, I think it might've been Jay Bhattacharya 
like even said something along the lines of like, oh, well, it's not supposed to be a policy recommendation, right? It's it's just like a statement of principle. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of feel like they just don't care and they know yeah, like that that just makes me feel like it's it's a preemptive thing. Yeah. Right. Where they're trying to head off even the the mere like suggestion that we might implement something to try to bring this under control. No, I, I think that's completely right. And the I, idea that we would instead of taking measures to keep incidents of COVID low, we would instead take measures to identify what may be tens or even a hundred million people. Uh, who live in households with others, Mm -hmm. who uh, often require care from others, uh, Mm -hmm. and they're therefore exposed to other people, to think about what does it mean in terms of government coordination and spending to be able to adequately protect all those people. It's at least as big of a project as keeping community transmission itself low. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not something that the Hoover Institution or the American Institute for Economic Research want the government to take on because they're uh, opposed to exactly that sort of thing. So I I think it's just a canard and it's just so they can point to something that says, oh, no, we're not just going to let everyone die. But in fact, that's precisely what they're going to do. And and back to Abby's sort of tinfoil hat thinking. um, (laughs) Sometimes conspiracies are true. Um, (laughs) I I haven't connected all the dots here, but I think there's a lot of truth to this idea that this response was crafted precisely because uh, they knew that it was going to be a shit show. uh, And the, the U.S. government's response to all of this. It was reported in the New York Times, uh, it was either yesterday or the day before, that a high-level Trump advisor in late February went to the Hoover Institution in, in, in the campus of Stanford University mm-hmm. and presented to their board of directors, which is comprised of uh, mostly wealthy investor types, presented to them that COVID was coming, it was going to be bad. The U.S. was not going to be able to manage it well uh, on the same day that the administration was telling the public that everything was going to be fine. Right. Um, just one month later, you have Jay Bhattacharya first publish an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal, likely facilitated through the Hoover Institution and his connections there. He used to be a fellow there. And then days later, presenting about how overblown uh, the concerns about COVID are. Uh, so you have the same organization hosting this Trump meeting and then uh, and then these events that are completely, you know, have opposite messages. So, so seems like something's going on there. I don't think, you know, you have to be that uh, cynical to. Yeah. You don't have to be Dale Gribble to think something's going on. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know, in the United States, we have this this habit of liking to individuate risk and to um, sort of abide by racehorse theory as much as people say, like, oh, you know, like eugenics isn't alive and real. If if we are to proceed with the strategy that we are continuing to um, implement, which is is basically just completely unfettered community spread. It would actually probably be the largest eugenics program in history if it were to be codified into public policy, because whether it's intentional or not, but the calculation is here that there are a certain amount of deaths that are just gonna 
happen. And that the most important thing, because we can't manage it, is um, to make sure that the economy and capitalism doesn't go down with the ship um, or with the thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people who are going to die and continue to die as a result of the fact that you know, we're essentially prioritizing the continuation of business operations as normal over any sort of attempt to address this in a way that could minimize, you know, risk of long term complications for these young people that they're ready to send out back to live their lives again. I mean, none of their arguments, this has been pointed out over and over, none of their their arguments actually address the fact that, you know, there is massive asymptomatic spread and that people who are asymptomatic and people who are younger can have very long term um, complications from COVID. I, I mean, Kaldorf points out in every interview that he makes like, well, you know, we only have a year of data, so we really don't know how long term this disability uh, could be. Yeah. But, Megan McArdle brain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's... um. As someone with a, a disease that has symptoms that is very similar to what a lot of COVID long haulers are experiencing, like what we're looking at is potentially exposing a huge portion of our population to long term, long term health impacts. I mean, there is permanent damage to people's organs that is happening. I have a friend who is young, who is healthy, who uh, works out six days a week, like one of the most fit people I know got COVID twice now, has a lesion oh the God. size of a quarter in his right lung and two that big in his left. And he is one oh of the God. people that the Great Barrington Declaration says should be able to resume their lives as normal. Now, obviously, in order to make this argument, you have to ignore so much evidence that we have. And yet, you know, because of this sort of sophisticated media apparatus, which they've got behind them and all these you know, other interests which are like pushing this messaging forward, it's it's obviously a more convenient option for young people who don't like staying home or who are, you know, housing insecure. And, it, you know, I think it's in a lot of ways just sort of indicative of our culture of eugenics and how ingrained eugenics is in our society. And we just really don't value vulnerable lives the way that we pretend we do. Yeah, so I think um, one thing that I think often is kind of left out of this discussion. And I know that um, there is an epidemiologist at, I think, Yale named Greg Gonsalves, who is cool. He's like... Love him. Um, yeah, he's been very like vocal um, about this. And I mean, I think he's right. But I think that he might have pointed this out too. But, you know, we talk about how like, you know, low risk people and how especially like in the Great Barrington Declaration, they're really focused on kind of age targeting. But something that I think is often missing is that um, especially compared to people in other wealthy, like for example, Western European countries, Americans are not that healthy. Um, <laughs> we have it, like, and I'm sorry, I didn't bring any like figures to this discussion because I wasn't really expecting to talk about this, but you know, we have pretty high levels of these so-called underlying conditions, right, and morbidities that raise, you know, an individual's risk if, you know, if they were to be infected with COVID, raises their risk of um, 
severe disease or even death. Aren't we number one in the world for uh, ESRD, like uh, end-stage renal disease? We're like number one or number two. Japan is number one or we're number one. I forget who's number one, but we're Uh, we're nearly the winner. I, I don't know. I would believe it. And I mean, you know, we have we have very, very high burdens of a lot of chronic conditions at honestly, like quite what we would call young ages um, in our population. And to get to your point, you know, eugenics, like social Darwinism, those burdens of chronic disease are not born equally um, by every you know, person or by every sort of demographic or, you know, subpopulation group in the United States. And when we talk about children, I just read something yesterday. And again, I'm sorry, I didn't like write this citation down, but um, they are starting to find um, it's a, it's a disorder called MIS-C mm-hmm. and I, it's like, it's like a multi-system inflammatory disorder, I think. And they are starting to find that this can be a long-term complication of COVID in children. Um, and available data suggests that the incidence of MISC after COVID infection is much more common among black and Latinx children um, than it is among white children. So, you know, when they say, you know, like it's fine for children to go to school, young people aren't at risk. You know, what I really hear is, I don't know, something not good. <laughs> no, that's a great point, actually, to, to bring up multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is MISC. That's something we've been talking about on the show since, since May, when we first started hearing like some anecdotes anecdotal case reports here and there, particularly coming Mm -hmm. out of like Southern Italy and Southern France, where people are, um, you know, lower down in the like country's range of like socioeconomic brackets, right? You have a lot of children who are experiencing these sort of like unusual migrating symptoms. And I think it's really important that to like talk about what actually is going on in fucking children. Like what are these children experiencing when they are, um, having this multi-system inflammatory disease process as a result of contracting COVID, which is they have inflammation in the heart, inflammation in the lungs, inflammation in the kidneys, inflammation in the brain, inflammation in the skin, eyes, gastrointestinal organs. Um, They will have fevers for weeks. They will have abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, neck pain, rashes, bloodshot eyes, fatigue, um, that it can lead to like just massive damage just from the process of the immune system going around. And this is a problem of like the body creating autoantibodies. And essentially, like we are seeing COVID induce autoimmune like uh, disease processes in people of all ages, not just the elderly. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin Kaldorf would say mm-hmm. that's just like uh, collateral damage <laughs> when you are driving a car. Some people get into accidents, which I think is a kind of a bizarre metaphor. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, there's like a double burden here, right? Because, you know, in this country that we live in, right, black children already bear, you know, a greater burden of exposure to harms, you know, harms to their health at younger and younger ages because of, you know, racism in all its facets, basically. And now we're saying, well, that's fine. You know, like they can just bear this additional burden of these long-term consequences of COVID. And I, you know, I, that like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like the, the, the great Barrington people have not addressed this. And I think it's because they don't actually care. Right. <laughs> so. I mean, but I think but this is like really, to me, like one of the things I'm just so fascinated by is how, uh, 
fringe ideas go mainstream. Like this is this, this podcast could be described in certain ways as a home of fringe ideas, but which will probably <laughs> not in the current political context ever go mainstream. Um, but the the thing about this, the allure of the Great Barrington Declaration, it would seem to me, and I'm curious because you guys have looked at these people and, and you've watched so many of their interviews. Uh, like what fascinates me is, is what is the allure? And it, it, it occurs to me that there's two things going on. One is, as you said, like business groups and like uh, politicians just want to be able to say that the state and local health departments that have autonomy and authority over matters of public health don't deserve it. So they just and they just want to be able to say herd immunity, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that some of the ideas that are baked in here about whose lives you know, the implicit sort of valuation of statistical life here is Mm -hmm. like already so baked into our politics. Like in other words, that the Great Barrington Declaration feeds on the fact that people already sort of implicitly believe these things about whose lives are are worth protecting and whose aren't. Is that like a, I'm just, I mean, what do you think is the the mechanism by which these people have gained appeal because I think in order to understand how to stop them it's like we have to get a grip on that right yeah I mean mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if it's the allure of the ideas themselves I think what happened was the right-wing think tank ecosystem decided they needed to compete on the terrain of scientific discourse Hmm. Uh, and they kind of surveyed the field and and looked for who are the people uh, who have plausible credentials that could be believed by the public uh, who are making arguments that are opposed to public health interventions. Uh, and, and they cultivated a few of them. And they did that in the UK and they did that in the US. Uh, and, and actually, Sunitra Gupta has been very busy. She's part of both countries' campaigns. And... I don't. Yeah, I, I think probably different people have different reasons for wanting to believe uh, in, in this message. I do like in my sort of survey of what's going on in social media around people who are opposed to COVID public health interventions. They are citing, oh, so and so. Scott Atlas says this. Sunitra Gupta says that. Uh, they, they are just trying to false to their argument by its association with people who who can be viewed in their eyes as equally credentialed as someone like, uh, you know, Francis Collins, head of the NIH or uh, whoever it may be who, who has an actual mainstream and uh, more science based argument. I mean, one of the things that I, I think is particularly like successful about this um Obviously, like any public messaging strategy that could, uh, you know, be perceived as a silver bullet is clearly like it has legs right now. I mean, we've seen this with the spread of misinformation coming from the White House uh, in regards to therapeutics, like with hydroxychloroquine. Um, we're, we're frankly seeing it now with like a whole new class of drugs, which is frankly a little terrifying to me with the uh, monoclonal antibody discourse that we've seen. But, you know... <laughs> Like one of the things that I think is quite compelling about this is that they're kind of offering up a 
a solution to something that many people have been pointing out for a long time, which is that the pandemic has a disproportionate impact on the working class. And I, I think in a sense, it's quite dangerous because because of this point, because in a lot of ways, you know, right now we've done a very good job as a society of like going through the motions of pretending that we care about vulnerable people though as we like to point out on death panel constantly that's always couched in some sort of idea that the vulnerable deaths that we're seeing are preordained or they were just um you know pulled from the future is that like wild milwaukee journal sentinel article put it and and i think often like what Kaldorf and uh, Bhattacharya and Gupta are offering is really just um, almost like peace of mind to the very people that they're critiquing, um, saying, you know, yes, if you just like send your kids back to school, you're doing the right thing for the poor people that that, you know, the news is making you feel bad about. And ultimately, it's um, it's pretty fucked up because the targeted protection, the focus protection strategy would be sending the same people to work that he's saying are being disproportionately impacted by these quote unquote lockdowns, which again are not actually happening. And, you know, one of the things that I think maybe we could push back on for a second is, is like, you know, so we know that, um, we know that this has this like massive astroturf backing and that there is, you know, some disingenuous intent to be pushing this messaging. Like they don't have public health in mind. I think we can take that as a given at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then in my mind, it's like, well, so what, what is the, like, what is the point? What is the reason that they are, you know, pushing forward this, um, social Darwinism philosophy and this idea forward, you know, is it that they're trying to, wash themselves of having to engage with the argument around vulnerable populations? Is it really just, you know, that we need to change our lockdown strategy so capitalism can continue at all costs? It's, you know, it's hard to say one or the other, obviously, but maybe we could sort of talk about like how this like working class narrative is, is actually quite a strong point that they have that has unfortunately been kind of difficult to push back on in many of the media appearances that they've had where people have like tried to debate them like the democracy now uh interview that you mentioned abby but you know more specifically like it is a very compelling answer to the problem of like the fact that covid has a disproportionate impact on poor people i think it's so i i don't think they (laughs) the, the way they put it is not that COVID has a disproportionate impact on poor people, which is correct. They they like to say that what they call lockdowns have a disproportionate impact mm-hmm. on poor people and disproportionately harmful impact on on the working class. Uh, but they don't really flesh that out. <laughs> and just so my my housemate is a union organizer for a hotel worker union, and. She actually was promoted to health and safety uh, organizer during the pandemic. And these these workers who are predominantly black and Latinx uh, for a while didn't have to go into work. They were protected by the by the the economic restrictions that were placed in in Boston. Um, They didn't have to go out when when they were most at risk to get exposed Uh, so 
actually, those interventions protected them. They continued to receive money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some government support there at some point. And they didn't have to go out into the world, onto pl- public transportation, into um, you know indoor settings with lots of different people. So they, they were protected by that intervention. And then the hotels opened back up and they had to go back to work. And now the employer, there's a constant struggle around, are, are the bosses following the policy that have been now negotiated in the contract? Often they aren't, then they have to go through arbitration. And that's a unionized workforce, which is not not most of the uh, private sector workforce in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so mo- mo- most workers, you know, there's so much occupational exposure uh, that's leading to COVID and, and that's um, being transmitted within families uh, in, and so many multi-generational households and working class and especially black and Latinx families. So making it so that fewer people have to go to work is is quite beneficial, actually. And what they don't want to talk about is what needs to happen for that to happen in a humane yeah. way, mm-hmm. which is things like, like pay, paying people to stay home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like what you just said, Justin, is like what I have been thinking about, like as we've been talking about this, right? So whose interests are served, right? By arguing that everything needs to open back up and like the, the, the great you know, monolith of the working class needs to just go back to work, right? You could easily argue, right? That you could easily argue it from the other side and say, oh, you know, we think that all of these, you know, pandemic, this patchwork of pandemic response measures um, has really been inadequate, right? And hasn't really been sufficient to protect everybody. And you could argue, you know, we think that these measures have had a disproportionate impact on the working class. And therefore, we should pressure the government to do another stimulus, right? Or to implement, you know, more stimulus or income replacement or income protection policies that would actually enable people to stay home, right? Like that would make sense if your real interest is like the health and, you know, kind of the holistic well-being, you know, financial, social, whatever, of um, working class and poor people. What doesn't make sense if that's in your interest is to say, like, we just need to open everything back up because it's just not a risk. Because we know that it is a risk, (laughs) right? So to me, like, this argument about the working class is um, kind of a, like, toss-off attempt to build the illusion of kind of a bipartisan consensus around what they are trying to claim is like a minority scientific view, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that they have been very clear about that in kind of their messaging and their media appearances, right? They're saying like, oh, well, we appeared in Jacobin and we appeared on Laura Ingraham. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really people from all sides that are coming together around this idea that like, we just have to open everything back up and do this like focused protection nonsense. So like, right. I think um, it is part of their kind of like rhetorical strategy to make it seem like there is kind of more consensus and more widespread consensus around this idea than there really is. Because if you talk about it from the perspective of like actually improving conditions and improving safety, 
for working class or poor people, you know, what they're recommending doesn't actually make any sense. Right. It actually, it's sort of, it's interesting because you can read a lot or you can understand a lot about the argument by what it holds constant. And it's sort of the, Mm -hmm. it is the 1990s strategy of uh, making a, you know, making everybody more prosperous, you know, is just like, yes, every, the only way of doing this is just uh, forcing people to work on whatever possible terms an employer is willing to uh, agree to. Um, And that like, that is the only way, not only apparently of like making the economy strong, but also um, making people well again. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it's no longer just the economic doctors saying this, it's this, these pseudo scientific, like public health people saying this. So it's, uh, and it seems to me that like one thing that allows that argument to perpetuate is the failure of major political parties of offering an alternative Mm -hmm. uh, and saying Mm -hmm. like, no, we actually can have an economy that's built around uh, actually caring for people and, and putting those things you know, as a priority rather than just doing what Nancy Pelosi has done, which is introduce relief <laughs> bills and, and modest ones yeah. at that. So I've been kind of thinking about how this, I feel like this has kind of been a right wing and sort of Republican strategy for certainly as long as I've been alive. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like a neoliberal strategy, which is to like starve the state so that like the state fails and then point to the failure of the state to say that we can't do anything with government, right? Like, so the state has obviously failed with COVID. Um, <laughs> you know, our response is a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> it could like, it could, I mean, it could be worse, but it is like pretty bad. I don't know if it could um, be worse. It's pretty bad. It's pretty fucking worst case scenario at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like pretty fucking <laughs> grim. Um, But, you know, so there's this like now this massive state failure. And I think that this is an opportunity for the right to say, well, look, you know, big government can't do anything. So like, obviously, you know, we're we're not going to implement, you know, a robust test, you know, a robust national testing, you know, tracing and isolating program. We're not going to implement any kind of income support, right? Like we're not really going to take bailing out small businesses that seriously because like the state, you know, look at it, it failed at COVID. It can't, it can't do these things. So, you know, there's just nothing we can do. Like there's no alternative to essentially, you know, just forging ahead with the status quo and, you know, maybe even lightening up on some of the like piecemeal restrictions that we do have in place. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or if it's even totally relevant to talk about, but <laughs> no, it's super relevant. I've been like, thinking and about this a lot. <laughs> we've heard this before. I mean, like I B, I'm remembering an episode where we covered some terrible argument against Medicare for all. And somebody was, it was like, you know, have you ever been to the DMV? Like, you oh know, why God, would you yes. want Medicare for all? It's like, yes, well, there's a reason why the DMV is how it is because they want you to experience government as a negative thing. Yeah. The post office, like right. voting, right? Everything. I mean, this ties into a point I think Justin that you made on on Twitter about how like so much of this game is to sort of shift the blame of like instead of attributing what's happening to people to um, government inaction like flipping that and changing the narrative so it's like well no it's happening because of the government's decision to make lockdowns and that sort of translation becomes you know a really key tactic I think that we see over and over again I mean and it's a it's totally a hallmark of um of our, you know, 
of our like general culture and has been at least since like the late 60s. Um, I mean, I was just like doing a lot of deep digging on like the 1973 Rehabilitation Act in the beginning of the CBO last week. And you see the same same arguments for like, you know, the dignity of risk and the dignity of work and and this dogma um, lies loudly within us in the United States. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um just looking at how the public has largely responded in the U.S. to the just absolute failures of government at, at all levels, probably most consequentially at the federal level, um, I think our expectations are so low mm-hmm. that ends and we're so um, sort of myopic in that we don't look to the experiences of other countries that I think most people don't realize that it could be a lot better and that other countries are have done a lot better either at keeping high levels of COVID out of their country or at, uh, in the case of, say, parts of China, going from a pretty high level to uh, being able to have pool parties with thousands of people in the pool. Um, they don't know that that's happening. And then they, they're not making demands of their government around, for instance, opening schools safely in ways that are a bit more creative. Um, in Boston, the, the plan has been to, in the public school, have the window cracked open with a fan in it. And that's oh that's their safety plan. Or in the summer, they're, they're in the winter, they're planning to blast the heat and keep the windows open. Um, oh my God. Where, oh, what where a better way to wear to have... down the mucous membranes than all the children. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry. Continue. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like where, where are the demands to have high levels of testing in the school or have school outdoors when the weather permits, use big public spaces, uh, perhaps to, that, that aren't being used for other things because of COVID to, to be able to do it more safely. And that's just one of many examples. And like, we're not, we're not getting much from our government because state capacity has been so eroded over the decades. And we're also not demanding much of the government. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And it's just unimaginable. The, the thing that gets socially coded as an unimaginable utopian fantasy is something like G what if we invested more than a tiny sliver of the federal budget into public education uh, to, yep. to make schools like remotely capable of doing an adequate adaptation to something like this? Right. Uh, or like mm-hmm. what if schools were not just sort of the warehouses that we, you know, use to allow uh, parents to just spend all of their time working? Like, you know, it's, it's uh, like these these are just too outside of the realm of like what. Uh, so the ideational stream would be better far to just have lots of people die. Right. Because being able to send, I mean, like being able to send children to school performs like an economic function, right? Because childcare is a disaster, you know, in this country. And so being able to send children to school is what enables a lot of parents to be able to go to work. Right. So <laughs> The, the debate about reopening schools kind of pivots on that like very kind of functional role that schools play. But I think you're right. You know, like I have read some stuff written by, you know, American scientists that are just kind of comparing, you know, like <laughs> academic epidemiology has not been very good at providing like concrete guidance <laughs> about whether 
and how to reopen schools. And a lot of the stuff that I've read is just like, oh, well, you know, in Denmark, they did all this stuff. Like they staggered, you know, when children came to school in different, you know, like children came to school in different shifts. So they were, you know, present in smaller groups. Like they spaced out all the desks and all this stuff. And I think that like, yeah, I mean, all that stuff probably could work, but the differences between like the American public education system and like what I presume like the Danish public education system is like, you know, I'm no expert, but I'm guessing they're pretty, uh, pretty different. (laughs) Yeah. They're pretty different. Like, and I just can't imagine, right. Like schools in the United States, like, yeah, can't afford soap for the bathrooms Mm -hmm. and like can't afford, you know, basketballs for the gym and all this stuff. And so I find it really weird when like, school reopening is treated like just kind of very abstractly and they're like oh it's fine like you know we'll just get we'll just do what Denmark did and it's like okay who like who's gonna do that and yet though like you you have um you know the great Barrington squad sit down with like Ron DeSantis of Florida who then says like oh this little conversation with them has um has given me a whole new pretext to not implement further COVID-19 restrictions. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's, I think it just betrays like ultimately at the end of the day, like where the priorities of those in leadership positions lie, which is not with the health and welfare of um, people who live in this country that they govern. Now, Justin, you said, uh, Abby said you have a dossier of the funniest thing about some of these people. Um, I'm assuming it's like yeah, about um, Kaldorf Gupta and, um, and Bhattacharya, but I didn't want to make yes. that assumption and lo- okay, cool. So, so Justin, you, you have this dossier. Do you want to t- tell us a little bit about some of the, some of the, like, you know, really who these figures are, who are pushing this, who, who are these fantastic experts that this right wing libertarian think tank has pulled, you know, out of the ether in order to be the faces of this. Yeah. So I want to preface this by saying, uh, because we might, we might get some epidemiologists and other scientists listening to this. There's sort of this like bourgeois genteel mentality that like, oh, don't attack other people's uh, personalities or backgrounds uh, just stick to the science. Um, no ad homonyms. But the thing is, they're not going to other scientists. They're going to the public and they're using their personal and professional backgrounds yeah, as, absolutely. Uh, right. yeah. as a way to build a credibility. This is not so a ad, scientific ad hominem, debate. Yeah. <laughs> ad hominem is not always a, a logical fallacy. Right. And, and also, as you guys point out, you know, there are no citations in the great Barrington Declaration, so it's not even if they're like they're not even attempting to engage in a scientific debate. Yeah. They're just making a de- declaration. Exactly, Here's our declaration. <laughs> yeah. The the reason I I was interested in this is just I'm like really curious who the hell are these people? Like <laughs> what what goes on in someone's minds where they get a PhD and they have this credential, um, and they decide to make sort of absurd poorly hashed out arguments that that can ultimately be harmful. Are they just complete shills? Do they actually believe what they're saying? So that's that's why I looked into their backgrounds. Um, can start with Bhattacharya. Yeah, let's do that. Who I think Bhattacharya is, is the one who personally believes the least about the argument itself. 
Um, I think he he's more of the right wing ideologue of the group. And he's sort of the, he's the he, Hoover Institute connection to Scott Atlas, who is currently. Yeah. So he's the he's the way that they actually probably got into this White House meeting and to their meetings with HHS. Right. I think this goes even further back that, than that. And I, I don't know. I think there's stuff that's happened behind the scenes that we're not fully aware of. But Bhattacharya is not currently a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is a fellow at another institution uh, on the Stanford campus okay. whose director is also a Hoover fellow. So there's this whole, even within Stanford, <laughs> there's an ecosystem of right-wing think tanks wow. that are like quasi-independent of the university. Amazing. Um, so Bhattacharya is, has, uh, he's a physician and he has a PhD in economics. I think his focus is behavioral economics. He's actually best known for um, how do you change behavioral contracts with senior citizens to get them to exercise more? Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, that's what his research is mostly You're going to be fucking kidding me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Please continue. Sorry. And, and he, he kind of gained some infamy back in March because he is working with this um, other physician researcher, John Ioannidis, who's a Stanford professor and also had some kind of controversial views about COVID early on. Um, and they decided to do this study of uh, trying to estimate what percent of, of people in Santa Clara County, California, have antibodies uh, and trying to use that to, to calculate what's called the infection for fatality rate. So how many among those who are infected what percentage dies, and and they they would later go on to say that's actually very low, and therefore there's no big deal about COVID, which is another conversation, but it, it's kind of like a misdirection. But um, just the the way this study was carried out was uh, a little bit unethical, I would say. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> just one, a little. <laughs> one, it turned out that uh, so. There was a whistleblower who went to BuzzFeed News, where a, a journalist was investigating this. Bhattacharya's wife sent an email to her child's middle school's listserv saying that, um, <laughs> come, and get, come and get your FDA-approved antibody test what? to know whether you're safe to go back to work. Oh, my God. IRB approved here, are we talking about? <laughs> Um, it was not FDA approved. Uh, it was not part of the study protocol for that to be the recruitment strategy. That is one of the most unethical recruitment strategies I've ever heard. I oh, it gets better. <laughs> yeah, this it is. <laughs> uh, so he he's under investigation for that, supposedly. This is what's re reported in BuzzFeed, I think. Um, but continuing to do, do his thing. Um, they publish the preprint, so not peer reviewed, uh, just straight to this this server where people can see it quickly. Um, and some people on Twitter start to take a look and say, like, "Oh, the the statistical analysis is completely off. Uh, you didn't account for the false positive rate of the test. You didn't account for X, Y, and Z. Just like really uh, basic mistakes they made." Um, that that's ultimately came to support their, you know, their contention that the infection fatality rate was quite low, mm. which which it's not it's not as low as they quite as low as they claimed it was. Although that metric has turned out yeah. to be not even that informative. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, you know, it's just so great to just, you know, you have this idea. So you design a study and then you find the data and you manipulate it until it fits your idea. Right. That's how this is supposed to work. Right. Oh, I, f I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. The, the key detail. <laughs> yeah, 
I've been um, waiting so for you to does, get to this. It does, it does get back. How did I forget this? Um, it turns out that one of the people who funded this study, um, a a guy by the name of Neilman, who is a found, the founder of JetBlue, who oh. was really upset about the uh, restrictions on uh, you know on commerce that was affecting his business. And and oh. he didn't disclose this. Ionitis and, and Bhattacharya <laughs> didn't disclose this until the whistleblower came out and, and it was uh, exposed in, in BuzzFeed. Oh and I want to add that after it came out, there were a lot of scientists who were just like, oh, but like $5,000, that's not enough. I guess this guy donated like $5,000 to the, to the star, provided, you know, some amount of money. But like people on Twitter were saying like, oh, you know, like $5,000, that's not enough to risk like ruining your whole reputation. You know, like it's not even that much money. Like, is it really a conflict of interest? That, uh, it's like, that's uh, such a yes. classic line. Yes. People have all, this is, I, I love when academics run, rush to the, the aid of other academics, like the bucket brigade of like, oh, it's not possible that there could be influence. There were other sources of funding and, um, and they were already going to do this research anyway. Oh this my is God. just like, they have any number of other explanations. This happens all the time. You know why? Because there's a lot of other people out there taking a lot of other shit money. <sighs> yep. Yeah. Uh, we can go We can go to Sunitra Gupta next. Oh, she is my personal <laughs> favorite. Um, oh my God. She's my fave. Oh, I'm ready. I'm going to do a dramatic reading of the glass blower. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll preface it and then and then let Abby take it away. But um, so so ju- basically just a couple things to know. So Sunitra Gupta is an infectious disease epidemiologist. She's the only one among the crew. Right. She's the one that's the conceptual epidemiologist, which I think is a pretty cool title. She, yeah, she calls herself a theoretical epidemiologist, okay. which is not, not a thing. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's funny because my, my PhD advisor actually is like the person most known for theory in epidemiology and, and has never dared call herself a theoretical epidemiologist because it's just not a thing. Um, <laughs> So Gupta is actually better known as a novelist and short story writer what? Uh, than even Amazing. As, as an epidemiologist. And I think her work is actually like somewhat well, well known enough where there is a, a little bit of literary criticism written about like academic literary criticism written about her, her novels. Um, <laughs> Uh, another thing about her is that um, not it's not so much about her. Uh, it's more about how the tabloids in the UK first covered her. So back in, I think it was April, um, there were these in the UK, there were these two models of how COVID would spread. But there was not all that much known mm-hmm. back then. Uh, so they were making strong assumptions. And the one that uh, the one that made the most splash and was responsible for the swift or not swift enough policy responses in the UK and US was by this group out of Imperial College. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other response was out, out of Oxford. So uh, Sunitra Gupta's group. Yeah. Uh, Sunitra Gupta was the senior author on this paper, meaning she she had some kind of overall coordinating role. Um, she, I looked through her paper. She hasn't actually published a first author paper, which means you wrote the thing yourself in, I think, over a decade, yeah. except for a couple of commentaries. Yeah, I mean, we actually covered her paper. We covered that paper, I think it was in COVID year zero, which was like, I think in mm. late April, and it was our three hour like intro episode on, okay, like where are we at now? 
And I remember looking into her and being like, oh, there must be another Sinatra Gupta who's an who's a, um, author. You know, it's weird that like Goodreads <laughs> shows up as often as her scholarly work if you Google her, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, her model predicted um, or estimated that half of the UK had already gotten infected and that they were well on their way to herd immunity. It turned out to be completely wrong. Um, <laughs> but the way the way the press covered this, it turned out that one of the Imperial College group members was on this panel that initially hired Gupta at Oxford 20 years ago and made a comment about how, and I, I, I have no idea what to make about this, except that the, the narrative in the tabloids was completely wrong. Um, uh, in terms of how they painted this. So one of the Imperial College uh, researchers was on this on this group that hired her who criticized her, pointing out that the the chair of the epidemiology department was in a romantic relationship at one point with Gupta and was like uh, questioning whether favoritism was happening, end up being temporarily suspended with pay. So it, it was it was told not about um, whether or not the scientific model was plausible and whether half the population might have been infected. Infected, it was like this salacious story of like romance and nepotism and sexism, mm. uh, which d- doesn't really map on to, to what happened. And the, just the, la- the really funny thing about Gupta is that she's lately been known before COVID for talking about the importance of being wrong in science and how that's a <laughs> fun thing, which I, I don't totally agree with. <laughs> Failing up. It's just, it's, it's just very ironic, um, or not ironic. I mean, it's the opposite of ironic. Um, but she, so one one of her very few first author papers in the last decade is a commentary about how the neoliberal model of scientific publication uh, makes you publish evidence-based stuff that's like more likely to be correct, but actually historically the the scientists and their work that's moved fields forward the most has been... Um, thought to be wrong initially what so i think that just like kind of gets to her worldview about like oh you can be this iconoclast and have controversial ideas and that's how you move the field forward which honestly i partly agree with but if you're gonna do that like you have to incorporate other people's feedback have some grounding in reality and not not be like rushing to have have your iconoclastic ideas be put into policy uh so i mean she's like the jordan peterson of epidemiology at this point it appears yeah and abby i think you had you had some uh okay do you really want me to read this Yes. So, we so explain read explain what it is to, pe- to for the listeners okay it is a novel it's called, she has a couple of novels and she has some like excerpts from them uh, on her website. And this one I chose because it's called The Glassblower's Breath, which I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a nice like COVID, you know, <laughs> respiratory virus tie-in. Um, the Glassblower's This sounds like a droplet. <laughs> totally something NPR would review. Phil, maybe we need to do, you need to do a, an audio book of um, Sinatra Gupta's for the patients. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the painted house, the glass blows breath. <laughs> um, so yeah, on her website, there's like um, what she calls like a pressy of the novel. And I'm not going to read that. And like, I don't even really know what it's about, but um, 
I'll read a little bit of this and it's like really hard to read on her website. The background is like a robin's egg blue and the text is like a dark red <laughs> and it's just like a block. <laughs> of, like, it's a block of like Arial font. Like it's really hard to read. <laughs> okay. Okay. Are, are we ready? Yes. You think perhaps you will leave me now that it is time to call a halt to this charade that our passion is resonant and our tenderness yellowed. The most unoriginal sin has become yours, that most harmless decrepitude. Your lips are stained with the velvet of a younger lust, the acid of an immature wine. How it tingles beneath your foretongue, my beloved. If you leave me tonight, what will you remember later of our love? What will you see through the alabaster windows? Will it be merely the shadows of my dreams? The aimless phantoms waving back and forth in Fellini-esque choreography. Yes, my love, I see you, peeping through stained glass into a candlelit cathedral <laughs> where the men and women of my dreams have gathered. They drift back and forth between the sunken pillars, the carbon capitals, the floor is bare earth. Can you hear Brahms' requiem in the choir, my love, that blood salt wind that once fed our passion? It goes on from there. I can keep going. Wow. wow. <laughs> this is... That's like two sentences. Uh, she's, she that's is not even like... That's Faulkner. like <laughs> grocery store. That's grocery store material, but like not good not good grocery store oh, material. I just, so I, I like posted this whole excerpt on Twitter and like my impression of it is that it's like if... Um, Finnegan's Wake were written by like the Dr. Bronner's people. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's, like, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it is though. It has like it has the Dr. Bronner's aesthetic of just like a lot of text. <laughs> uh, and, and so one of her short stories is prefaced with a quote, and the quote is about a six line definition from Wikipedia, quoting Wikipedia, uh, defining the title of the story. I mean, you know, I feel like clearly Gupta really enjoys writing esoteric uh, romance novels for herself. Um, and possibly no one else. Uh, and she should just do that instead of epidemiology. She doesn't need to do epidemiology anymore, in my opinion. I love this like journey for her. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> and it seems like she hasn't written, she hasn't published a book in kind of a while. So you know, maybe, maybe Gupta fun. just needs to get her groove back. And in order to do that, she yeah. needs a blood sacrifice of you know hundreds of thousands <laughs> of poor people, allegedly. I mean, I guess my question for you both at this point is sort of what are you like? Clearly, these people are trying to edge in further and further. Um, and there has been I mean, I just read an article in the paper this morning that like leaders of various learned societies are pushing back and saying this has no basis in, in fact. This is, you know, this is pseudoscience, et cetera. But like. What are you watching for both in how they're trying to advance themselves, you know, going forward, but also like what tactics people are using to push back? I mean, it, it might seem sort of ineffectual to just say like, no, the science isn't there. Like clearly something more is probably needed, but I'm curious what you, what you are both watching for on that front. So I think uh, the like statements that are starting to come out are really good. And there was one, um, there was one that came out in the Lancet, which 
for any like listeners that are unfamiliar is like a you know one of the premier medical journals it's a reliable in the source. world. Yeah, yeah, it's based in the UK, and a whole bunch of uh, epidemiologists and scientists signed on to what they're calling the John Snow Memorandum. So it's like named after John Snow, who's like you know the the founder of of modern epidemiology, or so we like to say. Um, and, you know, I think the memorandum is really good. And, you know, I think a lot of people who credibly are experts in epidemiology have signed it, um, and kind of endorsed it. And I think that's really good, but I think that, and I, I said this on Twitter, like yesterday, um, I think that the thing that's critical about the Jon Snow memorandum is to message it as a statement of consensus, right? And not as a statement of an alternate viewpoint or of the majority viewpoint, right? Like, I think that um, it's, you know, it's it's awesome that it exists. And it's great that like these statements are coming out, you know, there was a statement that I think a lot of like public health um, professional societies kind of signed onto as well, but it's very much in the same vein. Um, and so I think it's really good, but I can see kind of like the tendency of the discourse to be like, oh, well, like here, you know, they've restated, they've stated their position, right? And the Great Barrington people have stated their position. And it's like, no, 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 like the Jon Snow memo is like a statement of consensus <laughs> and like the Great Barrington Declaration is not. And maybe that distinction isn't as important as I think it is. But again, I think if we think of the Great Barrington Declaration as... Um, a strategic intervention to kind of like sow confusion and like create the illusion of legitimate scientific disagreement. I think that means we have to be like very, very clear about what these other memoranda are, mm -hmm. right? Like that these things actually do represent um, the consensus positions of scientists who actually do this, right? Like, you know, the, the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration are not strapping, you know, a garbage bag over their scrubs and like holding people's hands in the ICUs, right? Like they're not actually doing um, COVID response in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important to keep in mind, um, you know, that this is like a, a truly like a statement of consensus by people who really are kind of in the trenches of COVID response and know what they're talking about. Um, so that's what I would emphasize. And then in terms of like what to keep looking for, I am like, I was getting nervous when all of the, I, I was like sort of piecing all of this together in my head for like a week or so. And I was getting really, really nervous um, because I was like, oh my God, well, like, you know, they, they have the great Barrington people, you know, with a lot of help, it seems have really put a lot of effort into building this again, illusion that they are that they have bipartisan support, right? Like that they have widespread support that um, a majority of epidemiologists really agree with them, but are too afraid to come forward because of cancel culture um, mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And I was, I was getting very worried about that like rhetorical turn because I was like, well, you know, hopefully we're, you know, in a couple of months, we're going to get a change of administration at the federal level. And I was like, I'm very nervous that they're building the groundwork to be taken seriously um, even by, you know, like we know the Trump administration like doesn't give a fuck and like doesn't care. But I was like very, very worried that they were trying to position themselves as like 
communicators of this kind of silent majority consensus and experts with bipartisan support, right? Like, so that they could influence um, policy. But now I think like the response from the field has kind of come back um, strongly enough that that worry is kind of like allayed for me. So, I mean, we've seen this idea a couple of times, just like in attempts to appeal to the left in general too. And I think that's where this like, you know, foregrounding from Kohldorf in particular of the messaging of, you know, this is an assault on the working class is really an attempt to sort of hoodwink the average like leftist who might not be listening to the death panel. But you know what I mean? Like I really do feel like that is that is that idea of trying to create, whether it's to an administration or to just a, you know, to more broad sectors of the like sociopolitical uh, spectrum, right? The idea of the ubiquity mm-hmm. that this is a debate and that the, mm-hmm. these, you know, the strategies for focus protection, herd immunity, targeted protection, whatever you want to fucking call it, right? That that is in some capacity on equal scientific footing with, you know, stuff that is not just peer reviewed, but overwhelming consensus within the profession mm-hmm. and across multiple mm-hmm. disciplines, right? Not just, um, not just epidemiologists, but clinicians and nurses and, uh, other biostatisticians even, you know, like this is, this is not some sort of incidence of cancel culture. This is like three people arguing in bad faith who are at the helm of a fake movement. Yeah. And like you're meeting with Alex Azar. I'm sorry. Like you haven't been canceled. You know, like, <laughs> you're having meetings yeah. at the White House. Yeah. Like you're you're fine. No one's being silenced here. Well, But moreover, it's not just that you're not being canceled. It's that you are like not every argument deserves deference. Correct. Like, that's this whole thing with like these the sort of the free, the campus free speech argument that goes in a very like wrong direction is that like we have to treat every argument that is made by an academic with the same sort of like scientific equanimity mm-hmm. and like these people aren't playing and they are not playing the game of science. Exactly. Like they are explicitly <laughs> engaging in a political act yep. and thus they have to be dealt with in the political realm. Yep. And you can't just pretend like we're all, you know, it's all Habermasian like <laughs> collective. Right. Like we're not going to evidence our way out of this you know, like disagree, you know, I mean, I think the evidence militates quite strongly against, Mm -hmm. you know, the focused protection strategy and what the great Barrington three have said. But like, I think you're right, that ultimately, you know, this is a fight that is really playing out like on the level of like politics, I guess, you know, politics and policy. And I think like scientists are not quite, are not very good at like recognizing that right like so i think that we're probably going to see a lot more of like a lot more like evidence-based kind of like responses to the great barrington declaration which i think you know is good right it's important worthwhile yeah like it's it's important that we know you know the evidence against these kinds of proposals it's important that we know what the evidence is and what it actually supports but again like this particular fight i think is like pretty squarely political and like have, I mean, cause you know, there, there can always be, there will always be like an argument about methodology, um, you know, or about the evidence. And like, I think, you know, the, the great Barrington people are like reading from a script right. <laughs> about like what the declaration is. It's like very clear. They bring up the same points kind of over and over and over again. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think it's like, it's a rhetorical and a political strategy more than it is like a serious scientific document. It's just, it has to appear to be a serious scientific document in order to seed this idea that there is like a schism, you know, right. between or among um, public health scientists about what should be done when there really isn't. Right. I mean, it's like a good uh, way that I've been explaining it to people, which is which is actually funny because it does tie into Jon Snow, too, is I've, I've said like, OK, so, you know, Google Jon Snow epidemiology and they do. And I'm like, OK, so, you know, hit command F for miasma. <laughs> and then I explain how, you know, pr prior to this like cholera outbreak in London, you know, people thought that the, the prevailing ideology in science was that you caught diseases from bad air, that just garbage and things that were rotting would get up in the air in the middle of the night. And you could just be, you know, intersect with the wrong cloud of air and that how that intersected with your various humors produced disease right and um you know what john snow's research shows and he's like the beginning of uh double blind studies is this this cholera outbreak is that no actually there are specific pathogens which cause specific diseases and and you can't it's not just that you hit a cloud of bad air and then you like pull a slot machine to see what disease you'll get it's um you know that there is like a uh, a causal pathway to disease, right? And that there there's more to be mm -hmm. studied there. And essentially, what this uh, Great Barrington Declaration is is a miasma theory of COVID, right? And it's important to understand that, like you know, regardless of like whatever scientific arguments are being passed back and forth, like you're always going to be at a loss when you are arguing against something that is absolutely pure fiction. So describing it, trying to explain to people, you know, okay, this is like the miasma theory of COVID, I found has actually been really effective more so than even pushing back on like, well, let me explain to you exactly why, you know, a pursuit of a herd immunity strategy is not going to work. And miasma was also a convenient explanation for the merchant and the merchants and the merchant class who were opposed to quarantines uh, <laughs> and, and didn't want, didn't want their ships, you know, stuck uh, while they're waiting 40 days or however long it was uh, before they were able to discharge the commerce. Uh, so th there is a long history of politicization of explanations for epidemics. And uh, even it's, I don't think miasma was in bad faith in the same sense as uh, this Great Barrington thing is today, because we know a lot better today. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. we know better. We now. know what a germ is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there anything that we uh, any spicy points or takes or things that you guys wanted to mention that we didn't cover? Uh, I don't think so. Justin. Do you have yeah, I think we were fairly thorough, maybe even too thorough. Maybe even too thorough. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you for coming back, Abby. And Justin, we'll have to have you on sometime soon to talk about um, what your actual body of work is, because it's also really interesting. Um, listeners, please check out the uh, link to the Medium piece that Abby and Justin put together, which has a fantastic timeline where you can go and look at every appearance that Caldorf has made from or not just Caldorf but like the Great Barrington 3 has made um and you can really just like watch in real time the the development of their strategy and um you know it's 
it's like what we were talking about with like watching the Amy Coney Island hearings is that like, yeah, it's kind of bullshit, but also it's like watching, you know, to learn from what they're trying to do because it's very important to put up a fight and combat this messaging from all angles, not just like from, you know, scientific and institutional pushback because they're fighting in all arenas. So we have to as well. Well, Abby, Justin, thank you so much for coming on. You can follow Abby on Twitter at Abby C science, and you can follow Justin at J Feldman underscore Epi. Um, as always patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. It means a lot to us and it is how we can bring stuff like this to you twice a week. So, um, make sure to use discount code for $5 off in the merch, in the merch store. We wish her well and we appreciate y'all a lot. Um, and I think with that, we'll call it a day. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, Thanks for having us. Hopefully there will be no yeah, more so trivial Great Barrington updates, but we'll we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. The Great Barrington reporter. <laughs> um, thank you, patrons. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. See y'all.
Jared Curls. <laughs> <laughs>